Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us, then, go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, as always, we need your help. We need your help to hear you address us, confront us, speak to us, encourage us, challenge us. We need your help. We need your help to concentrate. We need your help to listen. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you will be at work this evening. Amen. Okay, I want you to bring to mind... The Christian person that you admire most, okay? It helps close your eyes and daydream about them. The Christian person whom you most admire, okay? You got that person sort of pictured in your head? What is it about them that you admire? few newly married couples looking at each other here, as I'm saying, most <laughs> Christian person they admire. That'll change. <laughs> no, think, think of the Christian person you, you most admire. What, what is their secret? What is it about them that you admire? What, what is it that allows them to carry on year by year being a Christian, perhaps through tough lives or difficult circumstances? What is it about them that makes just something about their life joyful? Whereas your life's a bit sort of drudgery and uh, I don't know, resentful service. There's just some, there's a sort of a levity or a joy about what they do. What, it, what is it about them? Now you know we get we get caught up in the rush, the the hustle and bustle of life, don't we? Sometimes we sort of, I think it's just easy to forget. Actually, do you know what? If, if I'm a, do you know what? I do want to be holier. I, I do want to be a better Christian. Uh, I think all of you'd be the same if you're someone who loves Jesus. Deep down, you, you do want to, you do want to serve God better. And sometimes we think about those sort of heroes of faith in our own lives and think, yeah, I'd quite like to be maybe just a little bit more like them. And what is it about them that we admire? What? 
I don't want to say what's their secret. There's, there's no silver bullet, obviously. But what, what is it that, that's going on in their minds and their hearts that makes them someone who you admire? We see, that's where uh, the writer of Hebrews is going tonight. By the way, if I say Paul as the writer of Hebrews, all right, will you glare at me? Paul didn't write Hebrews, but somehow in my head, when I was writing this sermon, I'd often uh, type that. <laughs> I don't know why. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But the writer starts with a similar idea. Look at what he says, verse 7, to these guys he's writing to. In Hebrews chapter 13, if you've closed your Bibles. Wait till the rustling's finished. Remember your leaders, verse 7, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And he's not saying remember as in, you know, they're in trouble, remember and look after them. He's saying do what we've just done, just contemplate their lives. There's something commendable about it. Remember what their lives were like. And as you recognize that their lives are good, were commendable, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith so that you'll live a commendable life. As you remember, this final chapter of Hebrews, we've had a few sermons on it now from uh, Sai the last few weeks. The whole point of this final chapter is, is live a life where you worship God appropriately in the minutiae of the life, in your life, in the nuts and bolts of life. Sort of 24-7, 365 worship, you could call it. And that's where the author left, uh, left us at the end of chapter 12. Have a look. Chapter 12, verse 28. He says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. His concern in this last chapter, as he moves into chapter 13, is to get his readers, to get us, to live lives of, as I say, 24-7, 365 worship, where all that we do is acceptable worship to God. And we've had a look at how that sort of drills down into the nitty-gritty of life. So first few verses of chapter 13, you know, love people as brothers. Be hospitable. Stand with those who are being persecuted. Flee sexual immorality. Keep the marriage bed pure. Stop loving money. That's what he's concerned about in terms of acceptable worship in our lives. But you look at that list and you go, yeah, but that's quite hard. It's pretty hard. It's hard to flee sexual immorality. It's hard not to love money. It's hard to be hospitable. Most of us, the end of the day after work, we just want to slam the door, bolt it, and switch the television on. It's hard. As we come to the passage that uh, we just had read, the the writer is is no less concerned for worshipping God acceptably in the minutiae of our lives. But, but I think his attention, or should I say his focus, changes not to, the, not to the individual details, 
But I think for the motivation or, or the fuel, that will help us worship God acceptably in all of our lives. And that is why he asks his readers to consider what it was about those people in the past whose lives were commendable and to imitate their faith. And he says, imitate their faith because, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. See, Jesus hasn't changed since the people who first taught the Hebrews about Jesus first heard it. Jesus hasn't changed since Jesus walked on earth uh, and between when they came to faith. Jesus hasn't changed between then and now. Jesus will not change tomorrow or next week or the next year. And so the same type of faith that produced a, a commendable or a worthy life that you'd want to imitate in the people that first told the Hebrews about Jesus. Well, it's exactly the same type of faith that you and I would do well to imitate if there's even an inkling in us that wants to live lives that are acceptable to God. So the faith that will that produced acceptable worship in them is the same faith that produces acceptable worship in us. And we say, well, what is that faith? What is that? What is that faith that might make me someone who, who people looked at and said, yeah, he's, he, she's not perfect, but, but they've got something. They've grasped something. Well, the writer summarizes it for us in verse nine. He says, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. And that really is, the, is the, I think, the main point of this passage. Let your hearts be strengthened by grace, not ceremonial foods. We're on to our first point on the, on the handout now. That's really the main point, uh, and I think the rest of the passage and the rest of what we're going to do tonight unpacks that. Let your hearts be strengthened by grace, not ceremonial foods. And we say, well, verse 9, what does, it, what does it mean to be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching? I think, uh, in general, strange teaching in the context of Hebrews is any teaching that would lead you away from Jesus, any teaching that doesn't have as its centre of gravity Jesus' death to make us perfect. In particular, the, what the, the teaching that was tempting the Hebrews away from Jesus was a was either sort of Judaism itself or a kind of hybrid of Christianity and Judaism. And throughout the letter, as we've uh, preached through it the last months, we've seen the writers say, well, look, you know, Judaism or some sort of form of Judaism, it might look impressive. It might seem tangible. You, you can do stuff. You can sacrifice things. There's blood. It makes you feel like, I don't know, you've, you've done something to God, for God. Judaism may have the backing of the state. It may have the approval of the establishment. But he says, verse 9, it will not strengthen us to live lives pleasing to God. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods which are of no value to those who eat them. 
And so the challenge for us is, if we are at all concerned to, to worship God acceptably in the details of our lives, if we are at all concerned to grow and be a little bit more like our heroes of the faith, then we will be Christian people who, who look and who yearn for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not ceremonial foods. But you say to me, well, Matt, you know, really, my problem is not that I think to myself, well, do you know what, I, I really wish I could be a little bit bolder at the office in witnessing to my colleagues, but, you know, it's just, you know what it's like in the morning. You think you're going to have to have time to sacrifice the ram before you walk out the door, but I always get caught up doing emails on my phone. <laughs> it's not our problem, is it? It's not the problem that we have. So what question is, as always, what, what is he talking about? when he says uh, for us not to get caught up with ceremonial foods. I think it's this. Throughout, throughout the book of Hebrews, there's, there's been a real kind of compare and contrast motif going on. And I think this idea tonight, this idea of grace versus ceremonial foods, whatever that is, sort of maps onto this bigger compare and contrast thing that's been going on throughout the whole book of Hebrews. And I'll rattle through it now very briefly. So if you've got, if you've got grace and ceremonial foods, I think that maps on to new covenant, old covenant. Jesus is one off death to make us holy versus the repeated sacrifices under the Old Testament law. Here you've got what is reality, even though it's not yet seen. Versus stuff that looks impressive, but the writer says, well, actually, all that Old Testament stuff, it was just, it was a shadow of what is to come. Stuff that is internal, that changes our heart. Stuff that is just external. That might have some sort of value in helping you live a life that pleases God, but ultimately doesn't change you. And I wonder, when, when we sort of start thinking in terms of that compare and contrast internal heart change versus external stuff. Stuff that that is powerful but you can't quite grasp hold of it versus something that looks religiously impressive and tangible but yet ultimately doesn't do any good. I think when you start thinking like that, you realise that actually perhaps we are tempted to have our hearts strengthened by ceremonial foods rather than grace. And I'll give some various examples uh, as I go on, but just a, just a couple, sort of hopefully trying to illustrate what I'm trying to uh, trying to communicate with the idea of ceremony of foods. So I'm sort of using that as a, as kind of a, a phrase for anything that is sort of external or religious that doesn't really change your heart. I remember, um, example, uh, it was a few years ago now. I, w- I went to um, uh, watch an art house movie. Yeah. It's not just Nintendo games, right? An art house movie called Mille Mois, which, uh, which is French for a thousand months. Uh, it was it's set in uh, Morocco in 1981, and it follows the. It's one of those sort of coming of age films. Uh, a young, a young Moroccan lad, uh, and it's set during the month of Ramadan. It's beautifully, beautifully filmed. And there are scenes where, you know, he's sort of looking out over, over the desert, looking up at the stars. Himself sort of processing what, what this month of Ramadan means. Uh, and I think, you know, the director of the film is, is really positive about it. 
He wants to sort of encapsulate or communicate something of the wonder that you have a whole community of people doing the same thing. A whole community of people taking time, time out from life, doing something different. I was a a committed Christian at the time, but I came away going, Flip, there is something beautiful, there's perhaps something beautiful about that. I wonder whether my life as a Christian would be improved if I did sort of go along with that idea. And for a month each year, I fasted from sunrise to sunset. Well, maybe. Maybe. But if it was just an external thing, if it was just religious practice, if it didn't really change my heart, if it was not grace, which we'll come on to later, I think that's the warning here. It may look impressive, there may be something wonderful about it, but ultimately it won't, it won't do any good, according to verse 9. Or another example, uh, I was ordained uh, as a priest last Sunday. Uh, and obviously I don't, I don't wear my dog collar very much, but last Sunday I did, walking down to this uh, great old church in Victoria. You know, I've got my black shirt on, I've got my dog collar. You know, it's, it's quite fun. yeah, yeah. <laughs> funny thought, isn't it? It's, you know, walking down the street, and I, 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 I just find it quite interesting to see what kind of looks I'm going to get from people wearing a dog collar. It's quite interesting. But, but there is something about wearing a dog collar that does remind you, oh yeah, oh, okay, I actually am a Christian, and, uh, you know, PJ, yeah, I can't glare at people on the escalator, on the tube, or whatever, because that just looks really bad. And so you think, well, maybe it would be really good. Maybe if we all wore dog collars, maybe that would remind us who we are as Christians the whole time. Would it? Would that, would that be a good idea? Well, yeah, it would be, be good to remember, wouldn't it, that we're, that we're Christians when we're on the tube, when annoying tourists are standing on the left, all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, if it's just sort of a ceremonial food idea, if it's external... It's not going to do any good. That's what the writer is saying. If you want to worship God acceptably, if you want to be like those in the past whose lives are commendable, the writer says, let your hearts be strengthened by grace, not ceremonial food. And then for the rest of this passage, what the writer is doing is is unpacking what he means when he says grace. What he's doing for the rest of the letter is taking us back to the the theological center of gravity, you could say, of the whole Christian faith, the theological center of gravity of this book. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. And so in terms of the structure of the rest of the passage, uh, I think it works like this. So verses verses, um, 10, 11, and 12... This is an, an unpacking of what he means by grace. So I think when he's, when he's talking about grace here, I think he's talking specifically about Jesus' death. Okay? I mean, grace is a, is a broad concept. I think here, narrowly, it's got the narrow idea or focus of Jesus' sacrificial death. And I say that partly because I think that's what fits the context. But also, grace and Jesus' death are linked, obviously, in the book of Hebrews. We've got a quote up here. Can you read that? It's a bit confusing, isn't it? Oh, can't read it now. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit 
of grace. So there's that link. Jesus' death, Jesus' blood and grace. And I think that, I think when he's saying let your hearts be strengthened by grace, it's let your hearts be strengthened by, by dwelling on Jesus' sacrifice. And so he spells out, gives us details about that sacrifice, verses 10, 11, and 12. And then, verse 13, there is a, there's a therefore. Or it's let us then. You could translate it. You see that, verse 13? Let us then, let us therefore. And then again, verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us do something. So that's the structure of the rest of the passage, and that's what we're going to work through talking about the grace, talking about Jesus' sacrifice, and then, in light of that, therefore, do something. So the first one of those, Jesus' sacrifice is not of this world. The author launches in, in verse 10, to a comparison between the sacrifices in the Old Testament order of doing things and Jesus' sacrifice. And at first, it looks a little bit like he's sort of making, uh, he's, he's pointing out what is similar between them. Uh, he says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So look, there are, there are similarities between the sacrifices, but the writer is much more at pains to point out the differences between them. So look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And the tabernacle here, again, it's just it's shorthand, I think, for the sort of Old Testament Jewish sacrificial system. And he says, we have, a, we have an altar that those people who are still stuck in that old way of doing things have no right to eat. So on the altar in the tabernacle, later in the temple, there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of bloody sacrifices year after year. But we have an altar that, that these guys know nothing about. And we say, well, what is that altar? Where is that altar? And verse 11 helps us out. Verse 11 says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place. Let's talk about the holy place. That's in the temple. That's the bit behind the curtain. In the Old Testament, sacrificial way of doing things, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place. That's the holy place on earth. But remember what we've already seen in Hebrews. Jesus' sacrifice is to do not with earthly shadow realities, but with the true, real, concrete, heavenly realities. The earthly sanctuary that those guys go into is just a, it's just a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus' sacrificial death is concerned not with earthly things, but with heavenly realities. We have the next PowerPoint slide up. Look at this, a reminder from Hebrews 9. Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. The geography of Jesus' sacrifice, according to Hebrews, is ultimately concerned 
with heavenly, not earthly realities. Obviously, it happened on earth. Jesus died on the cross on earth. But its ramifications are heavenly. And the writer says, that is the altar from which we eat. That is the altar on which you find grace. That is the altar from which you take grace to have your heart strengthened. Because Jesus' sacrifice secures for us the city that is yet to come. Remember that from Hebrews 11. And it's alluded to verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So that means to have our hearts strengthened by grace, we remember the, the geography of Jesus' sacrifice. It is made by a high priest who has gone not into a, an earthly sanctuary, but into heaven itself. We remember that Jesus' sacrifice, in that sense, was made on a heavenly altar. And it secures for us a membership of a glorious city that is more real than any city here, but is yet unseen to our eyes, whose designer and builder is God. And with our hearts so strengthened, the author then says, therefore we bear with disgrace. So our next move on to that second point. Verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. Because Jesus suffered outside the camp, literally outside the city gate, away from Jerusalem, but sort of feel, you know, spiritually, he, he suffered away from Judaism, which was the accepted way of doing things. The writer says, well, you, you step away from that old way of doing things. Step and place yourself, spiritually as it were, outside the camp, away from the establishment, away from the acceptable way of doing stuff. Leave the safety of being socially acceptable. Leave the safety of not rocking the boat at work with your radical Christian views. As these guys had been in the past, position yourself with Jesus so that you're exposed to insult, so that you accept the confiscation of your property, so that you stand in solidarity with other brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted. And we've already looked at those those demands in chapter 13. We looked at those uh, in verse, verse 3. But the point of tonight's passage is to remind us that we'll only be people who do those kind of things as our hearts are strengthened by grace. We'll only be people who do those kind of things, who, who stand with Jesus and stand with other persecuted Christians if we dwell on the fact that it was G- Jesus' death happened outside of the acceptable way of doing things. What will not ultimately help us to endure persecution is ceremonial foods. Anything ultimately that is external and not rooted in what Jesus' otherworldly sacrifice has done. Anything that forgets that we have a city that is not of this earth, that is yet to come. 
Anything that forgets that won't help us. So I mean, it's a silly example, but hopefully stick in your head. You know the TV program Rev? Talking a lot about dog collars tonight. Uh, I, I haven't watched much of it, but I think, I think this was like the second or third episode of the first season. Uh, outside, outside his church building, there are a load of builders doing something to another building. And as he walks by each day back and forth to church, they, you know, like, drag him off. They take the mick out of him, all of that kind of stuff. And eventually, after a really bad day, he just takes, rips off his dog collar and just says, why don't you guys just off? External. Dog, dog collar might help. External things might help. But it's only, the, it's only by grace where we remember that Jesus suffered outside the camp. Remember that his death won for us a place in the city that is yet to come. But it's only that grace that will strengthen us to worship God acceptably. But let's see what else these verses teach us about what it means to have our hearts strengthened by grace. Next point. Jesus' sacrifice means we are already holy. Remember that from the book of Hebrews, don't we? When that's been one of the dominant drumbeats each week. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice means we are already holy if we're trusting in Jesus. And the writer brings it up, verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. And that means whenever we're thinking about worship, whenever we're thinking about living for God acceptably, 24-7-365, we never leave the realm of remembering that it is Jesus' blood that has already made us holy. We are never in the realm of thinking we need to earn anything from God. We're not trying to earn his favour because Jesus' blood means that we're his children. We're not trying to earn God's forgiveness because Jesus' blood means we're already perfect. We're not trying to earn access into his presence because Jesus' blood means we can already approach the throne of grace with confidence. We're not sort of trying to make ourselves and our service and our ministry by doing that sort of make ourselves indispensable to God. Or prove that he needs us. It's actually a gift of his that by Jesus' death we can be people who serve him. Jesus' sacrifice means we are already holy. And therefore, verses 15 and 16, and the final point on our hands out. Therefore, verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. As we worship God acceptably with all our lives, we are continually to offer him sacrifices simply and profoundly of praise. Now when, a little bit of of church history for us now, uh, when the Church of England was emerging from Catholicism, Cranmer uh, drafted the, the liturgy for all the Church of England services. And uh, he writes this. This is one of the things uh, you'd often say at a Church of England service. He said, Lord and Heavenly Father, we offer you through your dear Son, Jesus Christ, 
this our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. See how, see how closely that mirrors the language of Hebrews 13? Saying what, what we do, everything we bring to God is praise. That is the sacrifice that we bring to him. And it's very interesting, you can't tell just from what I've written, but if you could see where this is in the service, Cranmer deliberately put those words after the communion. So it's after the giving uh, of the bread and wine, after the bread and wine's brought up to the communion table. It's after any offertory money that was collected is brought up and put on the communion table. Because he didn't want Cranmer, the guy who wrote these, this liturgy, he didn't want anyone to think that the bread and wine being brought up or the money being brought up was any kind of sacrifice that we offer that, that twists God's arm or that earns something from him. On the contrary, in the, in the liturgy of the, the Church of England communion service, the focus is on what Jesus has already done. And that's what we remember when we take bread and wine. We look back, we remember Jesus' death, and the response, and everything we do in response is done in praise. That is the sacrifice we bring to him, not anything that we, by which we think we could twist his arm or earn something. We bring verse 15. A sacrifice of praise, fruit of lips that praise his name, that confess his name. And it is verbal, and we do that. We praise God with our lips. We praise God when we tell other people about Jesus. But it's not limited, obviously, just to verbal things, as verse 15 16 go on. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. And I take it that is just, that is a kind of shorthand way of reminding us of all the things in chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. Loving people as brothers, being hospitable, standing with the persecuted, not loving money. So do those things. And as you do those things with your hearts full of praise, those are sacrifices that are pleasing to God. So if we hear the command, love others as brothers, in verse 1, and we think, gosh, yeah, but I'm, I'm loveless. The place we need to start is by praising Jesus that because of his death, we don't need to do anything to earn anything from God. If we hear the commands of be hospitable in verse 2 and think, yeah, but after a day at work, I just don't like people. The place we need to start is by praising Jesus that because of his death, we don't need to earn access into God's presence. If we hear the command to flee sexual immorality, the place we need to start is by praising Jesus that his death has already made us holy. That's the second part of what it means to have our hearts strengthened by grace. We've heard tough, tough teaching in verses 1 to 6 over the last few weeks. But the point is you don't have to do any of those things to earn anything from God. You do them with praise-filled hearts because of what Jesus has already done. And it's counterintuitive that, you know. And you might sit here and go, really, does it, does it work? To do those sort of things out of praise because of what Jesus has already done? You'd think, wouldn't you, that if, if you just dwelt on the fact that Jesus has done it all and you don't need to earn anything from God and you're already perfect in God's eyes, that that would make you lazy as a Christian. You'd think that. That's worldly wisdom. That's what the world would suggest. You'd think 
That if you remembered that you're already perfect in God's eyes, that you'd want to carry on sinning. You'd think that. But anyone, any of us who even for a moment have really grasped grace, any of us for a moment who've really pondered it and dwelt on the fact that we are perfect in God's sight, that Jesus has done it all, any of us who've ever pondered it and dwelt on it will know that when it strikes you, when it hits you, it just makes you... just makes you exhale. And it makes you want to give your life in service of this great God. It makes you want to battle to be holy. It makes you want to worship him with reverence and awe. I don't know about you, but you know, there's lots of times when I forget this. There's lots of times where I think the Christian life is just about gritting my teeth and trying harder and trying to please God and trying to earn something from him. I forget that every day, probably. But my experience, and I imagine many of us, is that the most happy and most fruitful times of service are when I am strengthened by grace. So I've been trying to do that this week. Every time, before every time, uh, I want to do something for God, as it were, you know, it was battle sin, serve Megan, write a sermon. I've tried to stop and praise God for what is already true in Jesus. That is what strengthens my heart. Not, not ceremonial foods, not gritting my teeth, trying harder. Because that just leaves you crushed and resentful in the long term. Not by trying something external. By the way, perhaps if you're not a Christian here tonight, and you, you, you hear what the demands of Christianity are. You read verses like chapter 13, 1 to 6 and think, flipping heck, I could never do that. Well, no, you couldn't. And you're not asked to. If it is down to you gritting your teeth and trying to do external religious things to be like that. But if you dwell on what Jesus has already done on the cross, shedding his blood to make us holy, that is the motivation to live lives fully acceptable to God. We started by thinking of those examples of our Christian heroes. I bet you as... uh, you know, come tell me afterwards if this is not the case. But I bet you that when you think about it, their hearts were strengthened by grace. I bet you when you think about it, they are the sort of people who realize that Jesus suffered outside of what was acceptable. They are the people who, who remembered that the Christian life is one of standing with Jesus in the place of suffering, in the place of ridicule from the establishment, because they know that there is a city coming that is real but which we do not yet see. I bet you that is one of the reasons you admire them, that they make decisions about the future reality because they have grasped it and they believe it more than the world around them. And I bet you that the people you admire are Christians are not those whose Christian service is just just looks, I don't know, ratty or um, begrudging. I bet you the people that you admire and who you want to be like are those, not whose lives are easy, but whose Christian service, whose walk with the Lord is one where there is praise. One where there is thankfulness. One where you don't, you know they're not trying to do that to look good in the world's eyes. They're not trying to do that to look good to other people. 
They're doing it because they know Jesus has already made them holy. And they're offering their lives, their service, their pleasing sacrifices to him. Not because they want to earn anything, but because they know that Jesus' blood has already made them acceptable to God. The passage leaves us with this challenge. Think, think about those people you admire. Imitate their faith. Let your hearts be strengthened by grace. Let's pray. Amazing grace. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you. That this is the life you call us to walk. The worship that you call us to offer you every moment of our lives. You call us to offer that worship with our hearts strengthened by grace. With our hearts strengthened by the knowledge that Jesus' death has won for us a place in that eternal city. That Jesus' death has already made us holy. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will make us people who look to that grace to have our hearts strengthened, who look to that grace to bear up under persecution and ridicule, who look to that grace to be motivated to live wholehearted, holy lives for your sake. Amen.